This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, what the upcoming UN vote to get climate change in front of the International Court of Justice means for the Pacific and the world. Clarify what are the obligations they have to protect the rights of the current and future generations from the adverse effects of climate change. And strange objects from the Pacific are turning up on Australia's coastlines, and it's got local fishermen alarmed. Oh, certainly. It's, it's certainly concerning. It's, it's pollution. Um, and not only that, it's damaging the reef. And the Pacific has some of the highest rates of unplanned teenage pregnancies in the world. We'll speak to the head of the International Planned Parenthood Federation about what his organisation is doing. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. First, though, the Tongan community in Australia is being warned to avoid what authorities say shows signs of being a pyramid scheme. The Dubai-based Validus International LLC describes itself as a network marketing company with returns of up to 350% on investments. A number of Tongan Australians are among those spruiking the scheme at meetings across the country. They've also tried to export it to Tonga, but there's been concern from authorities across some countries. Liam Fox with this report. On the Validus Facebook page, there are plenty of videos of sharply dressed men giving motivational speeches about financial freedom as stirring music plays in the background. I truly believe that the one word that everyone is really looking for is freedom. Know that you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to start working with great people. The way to achieve freedom, Validus claims, is to buy one of its financial education packages, ranging from 50 to 10,000 US dollars. But wait, that's not all. Validus claims the money will then be invested and provide incredible returns, as outlined in this promotional video. They would invest the value of your package into different fields, okay? Mainly foreign exchange, stocks, and crypto. Now, with that, they would reward you every single week with 2 to 3% rewards. Validus says you can withdraw your weekly windfalls, but if you don't, it promises even more incredible returns. The company automatically compounds your rewards back into the market. On an example of a 10K package, if that was compounding for 29 weeks, that would give you 10K, it would give you 20K at 45 weeks, and it would give you 350% at 60 weeks, which on a 10K example would be 35K. But wait, there's even more. If you recruit others into the Validus folds, you'll get a 10% cut of their investment as well. It sounds too good to be true. And it is, according to Niall Coburn, a barrister specialising in financial crime. Please don't invest in this. Mr Coburn knows all about questionable financial products. Before becoming a lawyer, he was an investigator with the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. He says Validus's marketing material has his alarm bells ringing. They propose it as an, an education program and, and as soon as they talk about the fact that you buy this information or training, then they talk about your amount becomes an investment and goes into a fund. 
and that's where they're offering you the 350% return, which is just rubbish. Mr Coburn is not the only one who thinks so. His former employer, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC, issued a scam alert last year and described Validus's encouragement to members to recruit new investors as a classical sign of a pyramid scheme. It said Validus appears to be operating a financial services business but does not have a licence in Australia. So if things go wrong, customers will not be protected. ASIC described the promised returns as unrealistic and exorbitant. New Zealand's Financial Markets Authority has gone even further. Last month, it issued an interim stop order preventing Validus and anyone associated with it from making offers, accepting investments or communicating any information. Validus has since gone quiet in New Zealand but appears to still be active in Australia, according to the Validus Australia Facebook page. It advertises weekly information sessions at locations across the country. And among those spruiking the scheme are several Tongan Australians who've also tried to export it to Tonga. Pacific Beat spoke to one of them who features in a number of videos and posts online. Despite the warnings from authorities, they maintained Validus is not a scam. Asked how Validus makes money to pay the returns on people's investments, they said, I believe they do trading. They declined to comment further. Tionli Fatukala is the one who brought Validus to the attention of authorities in New Zealand. Somebody sent me a, a, um, a clip of Validus because um, everybody in New Zealand was aware that I'm trying to stop scam in New Zealand. She's waging a one-woman campaign against questionable financial products after she herself was ripped off in a pyramid scheme circulating among the Tongan community some years ago. Ms Fatukala says the Tongan community is particularly vulnerable. For one, it's got to do with trust. Tongan people trust their people to do good. I think it's lack of knowledge. Um, people just lured into each other. They listen to everybody, what they're saying. She believes those selling validus to Tongans also use their Christian faith, using words like blessing to describe the claimed return on investments. It's a mind thing, I think. I think they know how vulnerable the Tongans are and how they believe in their God, in their religion, that they make that as number one so people can loot in. And when things go wrong, Ms Fatukala says Tongans are reluctant to speak out. They need to come out, but it's all to do with shame. They want to come out, but it's all to do with shame. Barrister Niall Coburn says it's a pattern he's seen time and time again. Companies deliberately targeting communities with lower levels of financial literacy. These things can grow very quickly in different communities because what the scheme is is asking is for individuals to um, invite their friends and families and communities to be involved. Pacific Beat contacted Validus. They initially said they'd be happy to talk, but they've been unresponsive since. We also sought comment from Tonga's Justice Minister and the country's Financial Services Authority, but there's been no response. That was Liam Fox with that report. Pacific Beat.
Today, the United Nations is set to vote on whether to get climate change to the world's highest court, the International Court of Justice. It's the culmination of a four-year journey started by Pacific law students and carried by the government of Vanuatu to get international legal consensus on the impact of climate change on our rights. If passed, it would be a landmark moment for the climate justice movement. Uh, but what would it mean for the people of the Pacific and around the world? In late February, Vanuatu was hit by two cyclones just a couple of days apart. storm, Category 4 Cyclone Judy, is being followed by Cyclone The southern islands of Tafia province were hardest hit. It's not the first time a Pacific country has been through a devastating disaster. There was Cyclone Pam in 2015. Winston in 2016. Gita in 2018. And in 2020, Martin Vurubavuru's home island of Malo was flattened after Cyclone Harold struck. When the cyclone came, we were left with nothing. We no longer had a house that was standing. I was so scared. My baby was too. He started crying. The wind was so strong. People in the Pacific are experiencing more extreme and more frequent natural disasters, often put down to the effects of fossil fuel emissions on global weather patterns. And victims of these disasters in the Pacific want larger countries to do something about it. Instead of polluting the world, they should try and protect our planet because we're the ones who are facing the consequences of this pollution. Now there's a chance for Vanuatu to put pressure on countries to consider the harms caused by climate change. Its government is leading a bid to get the International Court of Justice to clarify just how existing laws can apply to global warming. It all centres on this one idea posed by law students in Vanuatu in 2019 who launched the ICJ bid. The climate crisis is really undermining our people's ability to enjoy and exercise to the full extent, the basic human rights. Solomon Yeo and his friends at the University of the South Pacific wanted to get climate change to the world's highest court so they could get answers to questions like, what does human rights law have to say about things like sea level rise? Do we have a legal duty to protect future generations? And who is responsible for disasters caused by climate change? We decided that it's a time that we as young students who will eventually inherit this region from our leaders, find meaningful solutions. Therefore, we, we believe that through an advisory opinion, to seek clarity before the International Court of Justice, the world's highest court, to help guide governments, clarify what are the obligations they have to protect the rights of the current and future generations from the adverse effects of climate change. The ICJ, sometimes called the World Court, isn't like a national court that can prosecute people, send them to jail or fine them. Rather, it acts like a mediator between countries, helping settle disputes between states and define international law on a given issue. And one of the ways it does that is by issuing advisory opinions. So I think it's important at the outset to note the difference between advisory opinions and judgments on contentious cases at the International Court. Professor Margaret Young is an expert in international law at the Melbourne Law School. So judgments are binding on parties. They, they lead to specific orders, like we saw in the whaling case that Australia brought against Japan a few years ago. Advisory opinions, on the other hand, are requests from 
United Nations organs like the General Assembly for advice on legal questions. So they're supposed to guide those organs in how they respond to issues. So advisory opinions are not intended to be binding on states, but they give important guidance. And that guidance, though non-binding, can lead to real-world impacts. Take, for example, a 1975 advisory opinion on the sovereignty of Western Sahara in Africa. In 1975, Australia didn't participate in that advisory opinion, um, but subsequently that opinion was cited by our High Court in the landmark Mabo decision of 1992, which found Terra Nullius to be a legal fiction in Australia, leading to you know massive changes to the law. Um, so you know here we had a, an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice considering issues of terra nullius, which subsequently became useful for the Australian High Court. It's hoped that an advisory opinion on climate change could also strengthen climate change cases weaving their way through courts around the world, helping clarify if countries are responsible for the greenhouse gases they emit. For climate change, there is still uncertainty about the content of state obligations. Despite the Paris Agreement and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, And that's because the Paris Agreement sets out a framework for states to undertake domestic action on climate change, which are called nationally determined contributions. But that doesn't really go into the issue of obligations, especially if some states are causing significant harm to the climate system and other states are highly vulnerable. And those vulnerable states, like Vanuatu, say though an advisory opinion might not directly stop countries polluting, it will be like another bullet added to the arsenal of environmental lawyers taking climate change cases to their local courts. Here's how Vanuatu's climate change minister, Ralph Reagan-Vanu, puts it. It will, it will be another thing which can be used in any court as a persuasive precedent, as a persuasive opinion that can be used. And the good thing about an ICJ advisory opinion is that no matter what court you're arguing in, whether it be, you know, at the lowest level or the highest level, it applies. But there's a critical hurdle, and that's a UN vote set to happen later today in New York. Vanuatu needs a majority of UN General Assembly members to vote yes to its resolution in order to get climate change in front of the ICJ. We're fairly confident because we have the support in principle, of the Africa-Caribbean Pacific Group, which is made up of 79 nations. And the number we are hoping for to get a simple majority in uh, the General Assembly is less than 100. It's 90-something. So we have almost all countries already. Back in her home in Vanuatu, Martine Vurubavaru is still bracing for the next cyclone, which might once again upend her life. But she's excited that today's UN vote might bring change to her and her children's lives. I think it's a really good thing because in 10 years we'll suffer the same things once again unless we start fighting for our futures right now. 
That was Martin Vurubavaru from Malo Island in Vanuatu, ending that story. And thank you also to ABC Radio Australia's Fred Hooper of Pacific Prepared, with his help, uh, who helped me with this reporting. And as you heard, that UN vote to get an ICJ advisory opinion on climate change is expected to happen later tonight. That's 10 a.m. New York time to be exact. If you want to hear the outcome of that very critical vote, do stay tuned to ABC Radio. Australia will be uh, bringing you the latest about uh, what happens there at the UN. Now it's time for that special segment here on Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And also, as always, we're joined by, well, news rapper, uh, <laughs> producer and reporter extraordinaire, Kyle Evans. All fantastic titles. Good morning, Priyanka. <laughs> Good morning to you. Um, and now we've got an update here about the story that we've been covering for some, some while now, the hostage, hostage crisis there in West Papua. Uh, the latest is that Indonesian forces have launched an attack on the West Papuan militant group holding that New Zealand pilot Philip Mertens hostage. Um, can you tell us more? That's right. So uh, this operation was launched in the early hours of March 23 and uh, triggered, a, triggered a, retali- a retaliatory attack from the separatist group uh, and several casualties have been confirmed on both sides. Now, that's according to the West Papuan Liberation Army who issued a statement on Sunday morning confirming confirming this attack, and uh, they believe it's violated New Zealand's request for no violence. Um, it's understood the rebel group's commander, who actually led the capture of Mr Mertens, was among those attacked, uh, and the group has also claimed to have shot four Indonesians uh, and killed a soldier and a police officer. And do we know the situation for the pilot? Was he present during the attack? Yeah, so that's not entirely clear. Uh, there also isn't clarity on whether or not it was uh, necessarily a rescue mission. Um, like I said, this statement came from the WPLA and the Human Rights Watch Indonesia has corroborated some of those details. Um, they say there's actually been a series of clashes in the Western Papuan Highlands region uh, in the last week. Um, and I understand the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs is uh, preparing a statement to hopefully further clarify some of these details. Yes, uh, it's been, I, I believe, over a month, if not close to two months, that, that hostage, um, Philip Mertens, the pilot there has been has been kept away from his family and and home so yeah we we hope for a peaceful resolution to this and and we'll give you updates here on ABC Radio Australia um, and now to uh, Cook Islands, where the Prime Minister has a sounded caution about the AUKUS submarine agreement between Australia, the US and the UK. That's to develop nuclear-powered submarines here in Australia. Um, what exactly has the PM said? Yeah, so he's appeared to have joined a, uh, a growing chorus of uh, Pacific leaders to object to this agreement, uh, that $250 billion agreement, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, so this is reported by the Cook Islands News. And uh, like you said, this project allows us Australia to acquire up to eight nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, however, uh, the Cook Islands PM—it's uh, been—it's sorry—it's been viewed by a number of um, uh, leaders to have. Uh, to, to be nothing more than an arrangement to combat China that will only heighten geopolitical tensions. And uh, Mr Brown is concerned that that deal actually goes against the Pacific's Nuclear Non-Proliferation Agreement, uh, which is the uh, Treaty of Rarotonga. 
Yeah, very interesting there to see the different reactions from different leaders around the Pacific. Um, Prime Minister of Fiji, uh, Sitiveni Rambuka, and the Prime Minister of Samoa, Fiame Mata'afa, were also asked about this uh, AUKUS agreement. And they both seem to sort of hedge, hedge their bets a bit, like sort of mm-hmm. say um, we support it. And in fact, Mr. Rambuka said that he was assured by Australia that it didn't go against the Treaty of Rarotonga because we're not dealing with nuclear weapons here. We are, of course, dealing with nuclear-powered submarines. So it is interesting to see, um, yeah, the various you know, reactions from the Pacific um, to it. Uh, I believe our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Judgett, said it it was sort of deafening silence on the, on the issue from around the Pacific. So interesting that um, Mark Brown of Cook Islands has come out. Do you think, considering that context, it will um, be a topic of discussion at the upcoming Pacific Islands Forum, which is being held in Cook Islands, of course, Kyle? Yes, no, that's right. And he very much, it looks as though he's very much hinted as much, saying it would be a, a big part of the agenda, or quote as it's saying, I should quote it as saying, I should say. Um, and he actually went further and said a good result at the leaders gathering would be for larger countries to respect the wishes of Pacific Island countries. Um, as you just said, many are in opposition uh, of, of new nuclear weapons uh, and nuclear vessels. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, some, some are. We, we, we've got Simon Coffey, I think, who's, um, who's the foreign minister of Tuvalu, who's sort of more explicitly said he is opposed to it. Um, likewise, I believe, with Ralph Regan Vanu, who said he's opposed to it. But as I mentioned, other leaders are not as explicit in their opposition. So it could make for an interesting Pacific Islands Forum, considering that context and considering Australia's, of course, um, trying to be on, you know, assure its Pacific neighbours that this AUKUS deal isn't, isn't a cause for concern. Um, so very interesting comments there by the Prime Minister of Cook Islands. Um, now to some New Zealand foreign news. Uh, New Zealand's foreign minister has encouraged China to support Pacific regional institutions. Uh, why is that? Yeah, so this is according to a statement released uh, by the minister, Nania Mahuta, and uh, she made these recommendations while in Beijing, where she was recently, uh, where she encouraged China to support architecture, such as the Pacific Islands Forum and the Forum Fisheries Agency. Um, but not only that, but to also uphold an agreement that sees Pacific countries look after their own security needs. So that agreement she's referring to, that's an agreement that was signed back in 2000. Um, it was a de- declaration by Pacific leaders, uh, for, which basically allows them to coordinate their own responses um, to security issues. And uh, yeah, look, I understand given everything that's happened recently, New Zealand does hold some concerns over the potential militarisation uh, of the region, particularly as, as China builds up its military in the South China Sea. And has China responded? Yeah, so they very much registered, uh, well, she says anyway, that China registered or acknowledged um, New Zealand's concerns and, and acknowledged that, um, you know, they, they have a strong interest in the resilience of, of the Pacific uh, on all levels. Um, it's worth pointing out as well, she made those rec- um, she made recommendations to China's top diplomat who had actually just returned from Russia. And uh, she also reiterated New Zealand's calls for a withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine. Very interesting. Uh, Kyle, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. Pacific Beat. 
You are listening to Pacific Beat this Wednesday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. The Pacific has a young and rapidly growing population, but the pace of growth has not been matched by services available for sexual and reproductive health. And with sexual and reproductive health often a taboo topic, many young people in the region have been unable to access the help they need. Joining us now to speak more on this topic is Dr. Alvaro Bermejo, Director General of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Good morning to you, Alvaro. Good morning, Priyanka. So happy to be with you. Yes, happy to speak with you as well, because I understand you just returned from Solomon Islands. What were some of the issues around family planning and and the work of Planned Parenthood that you discovered while there? Well, I had a fantastic week um, in the Solomons last last week. Um, Got a chance to see Honiara and the work that the Solomon Islands Planned Parenthood Association is doing there, as well as going into a community, into Tinagulu in Guadalcanal, and then cross over to Malaita and see the work in Aoki and in another community in Kilusakualo. Um, met with uh, Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari, discussed with him and with the Minister of Health and as well as with development partners, sort of what is happening there. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say I was very, very impressed with the work of the Solomon Islands Planned Parenthood Association. Last year, it reached um, 73,000 um, women and girls um, that were um, reaching out to the clinics to look at getting family planning um, or to um, check themselves for cervical cancer. And that is very impressive, as you know, in a population like the Solomon Islands of 700,000 people to reach more than 10% of that population with all the access issues that we have there is is. Is, is really incredible. So that was the main thing I, I, I wanted to see and understand how we um, help women who are sexually active, who are not using contraception, but if you ask them, they'll tell you they do not want to have a child uh, in the next two years. That's the big challenge. And because we're not reaching them fast enough, we have the um, very high growth rate that we have in the Solomons. Yes, yes. And I, I think that's a similar situation across the Pacific. I, I mean, what, that's a difficult conundrum, I guess, that these women who are sexually active aren't taking contraception, but still want to, you know, you know, limit how many children right. they have. Like you said, they want to wait yeah. for a couple of years. How does, how do you, how does the Planned Parenthood Association there advise them? Well, it's it's you've got to start early. So it's about having um, sexuality in the schools, in the community, and and building that knowledge um, in the families. It's afterwards making sure that the services are accessible to this woman and the Solomon Islands Planned Parenthood Association achieves that by having five clinics um, on five different islands, but also through a very impressive outreach program going into the communities with the wonderful nurses and midwives sort of 
connecting with communities, discussing with them and making the services available at the same time. With that, we can see that we can have success. Fertility rate is still high. So in, in, in the Solomons, it's slightly higher than in other islands in, in, in the Pacific. It's over four births per women. And uh, But it is coming down and we have to keep working. And the Honourable Prime Minister was very clear about that. It's not only Priyanka, as you said, that services cannot keep up with this population growth. The economy cannot keep up. And if we do not, um, if we do not achieve sort of meeting the unmet need of these women, um, it'll be very difficult to grow the economy at the same speed, if not impossible. Mm. And and I wonder, Alvaro, is some of the difficulties around some of the stigma around family planning and sexual health in the Pacific and even associated with the name Planned Parenthood, perhaps, because, you know, I know when I think of that name, you often think of the U.S. context of, of pickets of the so-called abortion clinics, of of the contentious issues around that. Um has that been difficulty sort of trying to bridge that understanding? And can you explain more about actually what Planned Parenthood does, what your organization does? Yes, we, we, we spent the whole day um, in Kurusakualo and in, in, in this um, community in Malaita sort of really trying to um, explore the perceptions, meeting with women and men from the community separately and try to understand in a, in a community with a very, very strong evangelical uh, church and, and presence, sort of how did these um, women and men who were coming to the um, services in big numbers combined that with their um, faith. And we had long discussions from when they were um, taught and what they said that, you know, years ago, what, what we were taught was that the Solomon Islands Planned Parenthood Association dealt with family planting, not family planning. Um, and so we had a long discussion, which was really interesting about family planting and what that could <laughs> imply. And, it was interesting. So they had understood, and this was the discussion, that if you want to plant trees that grow healthy, you have to plant them with a degree of separation. You can't plant them one right next to each other, one right after the other. And that it was the same if you wanted to um, plant a family in a way, that if you wanted to grow healthy, you needed to space um, the children. And both were, you know, both those ideas sort of had 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 um, they felt comfortable with it, and very much they looked at um, contraception as a way of spacing uh, babies um, so that they could grow healthy, so that they could afford to educate them. And they were saying, and our faith, you know, is is is, is clear that um, if you have a family, you have a responsibility to help it grow well. And today education costs money. Um, 
you know, you, you need you need to have uh, a better spacing to be able to to do that. And, 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 and through that discussion, you know, they had become comfortable with with the ideas. And now um, they had a, a nurse from the community that was it's a community of about 3000 people with the surrounding sort of areas that was providing um, family planning to them in a, in a, in a fantastic way you know the 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 association there does more than just family planning it of course provides treatment for sexually transmitted infections which are very uh high and growing in the in the pacific including in these uh in, in these communities that we were seeing it provides um, diagnosis and treatment for hiv and um, it provides screening and testing for cervical cancer, and it provides education. So a comprehensive package of, of, of services for these women and girls, and particularly making a big effort to reach those that cannot access the government um, health systems and working closely with the government. In many occasions, the government also lending human resources, so uh, healthcare professionals to the outreach teams of, of SEPA. That's how they've achieved this success and this presence in the island. They also are very adept at responding when there are um, emergencies um, or humanitarian crisis and when women are isolated because of course we know that their reproductive health needs don't stop when there's a crisis if you're pregnant you still have um, to deliver that that baby there's increased rates of um, sexual and gender-based violence in emergencies and SIPA is there to assist and we had lots of discussions of how useful the work of SIPA had been um, during the COVID pandemic. And we had women telling us at that time there was no no healthcare professionals, nowhere they could go uh, for services. But, you know, two women there described how SIPA had saved their lives because when they had come, they had identified um, a lump in the, in, in, in the breast and had been able to direct them to treatment. Um, and because of that, they were alive telling the story um, wow. today. So quite emotional, as you can imagine, um, those discussions, those two yes. uh, women crying as they as they described sort of the what it had meant to them and why they felt that the community needed to engage more and, and, and support the work. Yes, very um, touching stories there, um, Alvaro. And and I, I've got to say, you, you, maybe there's a, um, a changed name in the works with plant parenthood, parenthood instead. After that, <laughs> after that story, I, I really love that metaphor around um, spacing out your your trees, um, related to yeah. spacing out your family as well. Um, I wanted to touch on on just before we go a, a bit of a, a, a taboo topic, um, and that's how um, women in the Pacific can uh, deal with unwanted pregnancies. You know, there's a high rate of unwanted teenage pregnancies in the Pacific, as I'm sure sure you know yourself. Yes. Uh, at the same time, ab- abortion and um, accessing services, even, even other flam- family planning services, is very difficult. In fact, abortion is illegal uh, or very highly restricted in many Pacific countries. <laughs> what impact can that have in places like Solomon Islands? 
Look, in, in, in the whole of, of, of this region, in, in the Indo-Pacific region, there are 130 million unwanted pregnancies every year. That, uh, sorry, 130 million women who, as I said, are not using contraceptives but do not want to um, have children, that results in about 53 million unwanted pregnancies every year. And, you know, whether it's in a restricted um, environment or not, um, abortions do happen. So unfortunately, because of the many countries that uh, have restricted uh, legislation, you know, those 53 million unwanted pregnancies result in 23 million unsafe abortions and 90,000 deaths across the Indo-Pacific. So... It is a huge problem, and we know that the only way to reduce maternal mortality is to make those unsafe abortions safe um, by providing access to either medical abortion or um, surgical abortion um, with the right healthcare providers. In both those cases, abortions can be very safe. So... You know, we are um, where we can and, and the restricted environment is a big, uh, a big problem. And we would urge those that um, want to keep mothers um, alive to review that legislation and ensure that abortions are safe because restricted environment only makes them unsafe. It doesn't make them disappear to um, make those abortions safe and save those mothers' um, lives. What we are seeing is many of those unsafe abortions, you know, resulting in, in hemorrhage and, and women coming for post-abortion care, um, in which cases we, of course, intervene um, to, to save save those mothers um, when we can, but on many occasions it is too too late. So I, I, I would um, certainly encourage um, further work in this area and review to see what more we can do to save lives and to make sure that women can access um, that that service. Mm, yes. Well, at the end of the day, it is the the safety and health of, of women that, that is very important. And um, yes, exactly. as, as you mentioned, I, I, I actually understand your colleagues in Solomon Islands have also noted, as you were talking about, women turning to dangerous methods to deal with their own unwanted yeah. pregnancies. So at the end of the day, if yeah. we can keep the mothers safe, that's, that's the main thing. Um, Dr. Alvaro, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you, Priyanka. My pleasure. And keep up the good work. Brilliant. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Alvaro Bermejo, Director General of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. He was there in Solomon Islands, as we heard, visiting the communities there to speak to them about their sexual, reproductive health and family planning. Pacific Beat. Fishermen on Australia's Great Barrier Reef say they're finding finding an alarming amount of strange objects they believe have come from the Pacific Ocean. The floating echo sounders, which look like a cross between a landmine and robot vacuum, are used by some foreign fisheries to detect and attract fish. They often have nets attached to them, and they can destroy coral and kill marine life if they get tangled up in that mess. ABC reporter Chloe Shamir 
Nikki spoke with Townsville fisherman, fisherman Chris Bolton, who's been finding these objects everywhere. We operate on the Great Barrier Reef between Cairns and Towns. So tell me about these devices that you're finding in the ocean. What are they and how often are you coming across them? Uh, these devices we're finding are uh, uh, fads, fish attracting devices and satellite beacons. I've traced them back to a Perth Seine fishery in the Central Pacific, foreign boats, way out in the middle of nowhere, basically. And yeah, we're finding them very regularly now, at least once a week, sometimes a couple every week. So the fad itself is just basically a bundle of floats and nets and rope and all sorts of stuff like that tied together to attract fish. And they've got satellite beacons attached to them. Um, they've got a sounder, a sounder on the satellite beacon, so they're tracking these beacons through satellite and they can see what fish are underneath them. And once there's a, enough fish underneath these beacons, they'll, they'll drive over and run their nets around the whole lot. I'm not sure how so many are getting lost, whether the, the batteries are dying on them or the satellite drops out or whether they just get too far away to make it make it worthwhile going collecting these beacons. But, yes, we're certainly seeing a big increase in these beacons washing onto the reef, reef and all the coast. And when would you say you noticed that increase? I've noticed the increase the last maybe two years. There's always been quite a few around, but the last 12 months in particular, we're finding a really lot. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's a change in currents or what what the actual reason is or whether there is more of them out there now, but we've definitely seen a big increase in them in the last year or two years. And what are you doing with the ones that you do come across and collect? Any that we see we collect them and the amount we collect, I can't possibly use them and then we're struggling to even give the floats away now. There's just that much of. I've been collecting them and stockpiling them for a few months now and we've got a, a massive pile of them at home, so I'm not sure what I'm even going to do with them. The beacons, well, they all go to Tangaroa Blue. Tangaroa Blue has got a really good program going where the makers of these beacons take them back, they refurbish them, and then they'll be used. Uh, they'll be given out to fishermen, to charter operators, to all sorts of people on the water to have them on board. And then if we see, say, a ghost net or a shipping container or something like that, we'll hook these beacons, these refurbished beacons onto the ghost nets or the shipping containers or whatever turn them on and then authorities or Tangaroa, someone will be able to track and monitor the nets, where they're drifting, where they're going. If they, you know, if there's a danger that looks like these nets or whatever is going to drift onto a reef or a very sensitive part of the environment, someone will get straight onto it and go and recover the net or, or whatever it may be. Nice and a good initiative, as you said. But does it do, do they pose any harm? The ones you're coming across initially, um, do that does it concern you to see so many around as a fisherman? Oh, certainly, it's it's certainly concerning. It's it's pollution, um, and not only that, it, it's damaging the reef. I'd say ninety percent of the ones that we find are caught on the reef. 
sometimes, you know, they're stuck and tangled in amongst the coral and you break a lot of coral just recovering that net from the reef, but sometimes you just can't possibly even recover all that net from the reef. So it is damaging a lot of reef. I only work a fairly small area when you look at the big picture of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, the Cairns to Townsville area isn't a big area, and I'd imagine these beacons are washing washing up along the entire Great Barrier Reef. So there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of them out there on the reef, stuck on the coral, damaging coral. That was Townsville fisherman here in Australia, Chris Bolton, speaking there with reporter Chloe Shamiki. And I, I'm so curious about this story. Uh, if you haven't seen the story online, these these machines, these echo sounders, look so strange, and they're quite big, actually. And I want to know where exactly in the Pacific they come from. So if you are a fisherman, if you um, are, are, are there out with the fish and you use these nets... Do get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. If you use these echo sounders or know where they might come from, do get in touch with us. We'd love to find out where they come from and how they could have possibly ended up here on Australia's coastlines. ABC Pacific is where you can find us. And with that, we come to the end of Pacific Beat. Thanks for your company this Wednesday morning. Let's do it all over again tomorrow, shall we? Same time, same place. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan and hope you have a lovely day.